Good morning. Um, my name is Ray Helwig. I'm an elder here at Berea Baptist Church. I'm preaching this morning so that we could allow our pastor, Bert Daniel, to have some time to accomplish some other things he needed to this week. Um, I do invite you back, if you're a visitor here, uh, to hear him preach. He's a very gifted preacher. Uh, and if uh, you cannot come back, I would tell you to go to our, uh, our site, our website, bbcaugusta.org. Uh, and we have a, a sermon archive there, and you can uh, also uh, access his sermons from there. Uh, recently, I have uh, been working with one of our members, Ralph Billado. In fact, he is gone today, uh, actually, and at a program for Simply the Story. Simply the Story is, uh, is a ministry that seeks to orally uh, give the gospel, give the stories of the gospel to people that are either semi-literate or illiterate. Uh, and in doing that, uh, we spent some time in the Old Testament, which would be very likely. And uh, I was reminded of my love for the Old Testament. Uh, uh, we were even talking about this last week, Fred, uh, Fred Corneliansen and I, uh, that we, we really have a, a deep respect and love for the, uh, the Old Testament. And uh, we, we know of the great, we, when we preach from, from the Word, we center that preaching around the New Testament. We do that because the, the, the fulfillment, the, the revelation of the great uh, things that God has done on our behalf uh, are revealed there in a very succinct and, and great way. But the Old Testament tends to flesh that things out for us. Uh, we, we hear great, great, great teachings and great doctrines from the New Testament, but the Old Testament, we come down and see how the reality of those great doctrines and teachings actually occur. Even so, uh, these examples are so that we see even to, today, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, that when the New Testament writer of Hebrews wants to talk about faith, he goes back to the Old Testament and draws from the characters there to demonstrate what faith does look like. And I, if, we, if we go to the Old Testament, it gives us such a greater respect and a greater uh, look at what has happened in the New Testament. If we leave that Old Testament behind us and we don't spend some time in it, uh, we do really never have a grasp of how wonderful the, the, the things that the New Testament teaches us really are. We lose a little bit of that edge in regards to that. So uh, as I am called to fill the pulpit every once in a while, I'm uh, going to start in a series in the Old Testament. I'm going to be talking about the, the man Abraham. Uh, Abraham is mentioned over 70 times in the New Testament, second only to Moses. And uh, he is a very relevant and a very uh, strong figure of the Old Testament. And uh, thinking that uh, this would be a good place to start, we're going to start with Abraham and uh, the call of Abraham, which is in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Uh, before we go there and read that, let us pray. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord and my God. Amen. Okay, as you would like to, turn, uh, turn. I think that's page 8 and 9 or thereabouts in, in the Black Bibles, if you haven't got your own Bible. And we're going to read Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on and still going toward the Negev. This uh, call of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 1, 1 through 9 is a very pivotal, pivotal passage in the Bible. Uh, you can, in fact, you could say that this passage here divides the first chap- seven, 11 chapters of Genesis from the rest of the Bible. The promise given to Abraham and his call sees the establishment of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, reaches into the New Testament and its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, and the formation of the church by the spiritual descendants of Abraham, and stretches into Revelation, even as we read this morning from Hebrews 11, that Abraham was looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, which is a clear reference to the new heavens and earth and the new Jerusalem of Revelation. This is a pivotal passage in that the fact that the great epic events like creation and the fall of man where sin enters the world and dramatically changes everything in our relationship to God, and so that God has to bring a flood which destroys all but eight people. And finally, he has to confuse languages that creates nations so that man's sin will not continue. This takes up 11 chapters of the Bible. But as we come to chapter 12, with the start of Abraham and the call of Abraham, 13 chapters are devoted to the life of this man and his relationship with his God, his relationship with his society, and his relationship with his family. But we can see that there is a great importance in this section of Scripture. And as we go through this, I want to examine this passage in three respects. First, we want to look at it in its relationship to the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis and the truths that we can pull from that. Secondly, we want to look at it and what it reveals about God. And thirdly, we want to look at what it finally shows us about faith. So let's uh, look at it in regards to the first 11 chapters of, 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 of Genesis. And what we see here is there a very dramatic change in God's relationship to man. So I want you to listen. Uh, and I'm going to just read a few. You don't have to turn there. We're going to read uh, some sections out of uh, the first 11 chapters of, of, of Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your lives. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirthing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree with which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles in it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Genesis 4, 8, 15. The Lord saw what the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the, of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Genesis 6, 5, 7. And then Genesis 6, 17. For behold, I will bring a flood upon the waters of the earth to destroy all the flesh in which is the breath of life under earth. Everything that is on the earth shall die. He said, Cursed be Cain, cursed be Cain. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Genesis 9, 25. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the earth, a face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, though they may not understand one another's speech. And then we come into chapter 12 of Genesis and we read, Now the Lord said, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the fam families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is a movement here as we look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and come to the 12th chapter from cursing to blessing. 
there is a huge change in the way in which God begins to deal with man. And I don't want, we want to be clear that God is not changing. This is part of a plan that he is in place. But the operation of this plan now is taking on a new direction. Not only do we see the blessing, uh, the changing from the cursing turning into blessing, there is a, de um, a, a definite movement of God generally dealing with man to God specifically centering himself on the man Abram. And when we see this movement from blessing and cursing, there is actually a large, larger movement of what God is doing in the fact that he is beginning now where he was working preemptively in, in, the, in, in, the, in the old, uh, the first 11 chapters, and he now begins to work proactively. And that is just a fancy way of saying that God is turning from defense to offense. So that when uh, God places uh, the uh, curse on Cain, he marks him so that he might uh, be an example to, to, to deter others from sin. When God sends the flood to destroy most of mankind, because sin, he does not want sin to overcome the world beyond the point of redemption. And so God confuses the language so that sin cannot progress as quickly as it was going to progress. All these things God did in the first 11 chapters of, of, of Genesis were as a, a reason to deter, to stop what was going on. It's not that God, again, has changed but as he fulfills his promise, which he gave, and as we read earlier in Genesis 3.15, the promise to defeat sin, the promise of a Messiah to come, the plan is now ready to move into a positive arena, into a positive direction. And the shift that occurs here from the first 11 chapters of Genesis to the 12th chapter of Genesis gives us a number of truths, and two of those I want to especially talk about this morning. The first 11 chapters of Genesis shows the total depravity of man. This is a term that we use as uh, Reformed believers, but what it is simply saying, that man is at heart basically evil. So we see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that the, mo <coughs> excuse me, that the movement of, the, of man in those first 11 chapters is always to sinful and to the evil. So we see that after the fall, Cain murders Abel. It's not far from the, from the disobedience from Adam and Eve to the murder of, of Abel by Cain. And not much later, we read in Genesis 6, as we read those passages this morning, that there is continual evil in the world. So much that God has to send a flood that destroys all but eight people. But even so, with such a great judgment, when the, the next generation begins to populate the earth, what are they to do? They begin to build a tower to exalt themselves above God. So God confuses the language to keep that from happening. There's always this intervention of God to keep the evil down. But when we come to Genesis chapter 12, God then makes the decision to bless. Man, without God's intervention, works totally towards evil. 
without the intervention of God in life. It, and, that, and that is exactly opposite of what the world will teach you. The world teaches you that man is basically good, that if you massage things well enough, if you give him a good environment, you educate him well, you, you allow him opportunity to, to prosper, all good things will come out, and eventually we can build a utopia. But the, the, the record of Scripture, and actually if you really look at the world, the actual history of the world speaks totally otherwise. What's more about this section here, that it's not only the fact that God has to deter sin, but he must actively bless. We see this movement into actively blessing. This is a second significant truth in the fact that and Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 12 where he says, there was a man who cleaned his house of demon, and this demon leaves, and uh, later he's wandering around and decides to go back to the house, and as he comes back, he finds that house empty and clean, and he brings seven other demons back with him and inhabits the house again. And it says in, in, in the scriptures in Matthew, Jesus says that the man's condition was worse than it was from the beginning. So that we look here that we, it is not enough that God deters sin, but there has to be something else done, that there has to be blessing put in there. It is, uh, not, this, this is really just a picture of redemption. Uh, and uh, the great, the great uh, reformer Martin Luther put it this way, and, and he said it was a great exchange. It's not only that God takes away our sins, that he kills our sins, that he pays for those sins, but at the same time, Jesus' righteousness is put into our place. There's two things going on. And, and this change from Genesis 11 to 12 illustrates what has to happen in our redemption. The fact that sin has to be dealt with, but at the same time, that righteousness has to be given to us. So now in this chapter 12, in the, in the calling of Abraham, we see this setting for this stage for this blessing. In the first 11 chapters, God was working to keep sin from advancing. In the call of Abraham, he works towards building righteousness. In the first 11 chapters, God uses cursing to prevent sin from advancing. In the case, in the, in the call of Abraham in 12, God uses blessing to work towards building righteousness in our lives. Again, Christ takes the curse of our sins so that we might bless us, so God might bless us by giving us the righteousness of Christ in our life. So there's a major shift we see here in the call of Abraham. Now I want to turn towards looking at what this section of Scripture, this call of Abraham, says about God. There's obviously no end to the great things we can say about God. But there are three things that are very rarely revealed here that are particularly precious to us as men and women, as members of the body of Christ. And the first thing we see here is that God is personal. We talked a little bit about this already, that God moved from the generally dealing with the mankind in the first 11 chapters of, Abraham, of, of, of Genesis to dealing specifically with Abraham. And we see that God's dealing with Abraham will continue over the next 12 or so chapters. And we see an intimacy between God and Abraham being built over that time. 
so that that intimacy grows deeper and deeper. And God says even through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter, one, uh, that chapter 41, that Abraham is his friend. That God is a personal God. God actually actively seeks out Abraham. And he actively seeks to build a relationship with him. God is not aloof. He is not, as the deists have told us, he is not putting the world into motion and then left to defend on its own, but he cares. God cares. So not only does God call Abraham in verses 1 of our text, as we see there, now Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, but we see also he encourages him in the blessings of verses 2 and 3, where he says he will bless Abraham and give him a, make him a great nation, and through him bless all of the world. But also, if we would look further on, as Abraham moves out in faith to, to go into Canaan, in 6 and 7, he appears to him again and shows him and encourages him, this is the land that I am going to give to you and your descendants. So there's this personal aspect of God, this personal relationship that he is building with Abraham. And that same personal relationship is available to anyone who is a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So that God is personal is very important for us, that he is a God that cares, that he is not an aloof God, but a God that desires this relationship with us. And secondly, we see that not only that he desires personal relationship with us, but he desires to bless us in that relationship. So in verses 2 and 3 again we read, I will bless and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make you a name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in, the family, in all the families of the earth you, will, you shall be blessed and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we might not like to admit this. We, we, we ultimately in seeking relationships within our own lives selfishly look for our own good. We seek relationships for our own benefit. But God desires in his relationship with man to bless. Listen, to, We can listen to this truth uh, in the scriptures from one Old Testament and one New Testament verse. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11 says, Well, thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon... So the Lord has taken the nation of Israel and put them in captivity, and now he is speaking to them, and he's speaking through them through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, and, um, for, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11, that was. And a verse that we all are probably fairly familiar with, not many of us anyway, Romans 8, 28, that God is working out all things to the good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. God, and as we sought out Abraham, not to benefit himself, but to benefit Abraham and to benefit the world. So often we are quite the opposite. We look for relationship to benefit us. 
And from the scripture meeting we, from this morning from Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That he rewards those who seek him. See how important the writer of Hebrews makes that. He equates believing that God is working for your good with believing that God exists. That the two almost go hand in hand. We, are not to see, we will not seek after God if we don't believe that he is working towards our good. But as important as these two aspects of the things that are revealed by God, about God in, in, in Genesis 12 here, uh, there is something that is almost as important, maybe even more so important. So we know that God wants relationship. He's a personal God. We know that God in that relationship is always working towards our good. But you see, even I, I might desire a relationship with you. And even I, at some point, might be able to look to your good above my own selfish desires. But the difference is, is that I cannot guarantee I will do what I say. But God does. We see in verses 2 and 3 again, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will, I will, I will. It's not I will try, it's not I, if you will, I will, but I will, I will, I will, I will. That God is capable, is proven even by the fact that we are sitting here today of fulfilling these promises. For we are being blessed through Abraham by, the Christ, by Christ and the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Charles Hadley Spurgeon, who is a, a great Baptist preacher of a previous century, uh, takes this section of scripture and he says that this shows the effectual calling. Uh, An effectual calling is a term that uh, is sometimes called irresistible grace also, but basically what it says, when God puts his hand upon someone to call him to himself, it always happens. That God not only can make the call, but he makes sure it happens. And then we have to make sure that uh, we understand that Abraham is not this good guy that God comes alongside to kind of prompt towards himself or whatever, that we, even in Joshua we read, and Joshua said, Joshua 24, 2 through 3, Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham came from a pagan background. Abraham was a pagan. And God put his hand upon him and called him and blessed him. God totally initiates this plan. He brings about this plan. God has the power to take this man and remove him from his paganism and bless him in such a way that he becomes the conduit for blessing for the whole world. Again, it is, I will, I will, I will. And hundreds of years later, Joshua shows God fulfilling this promise, and even God today continues fulfilling this promise. There could be no better news for us than uh, that God is personal that God, in this personal relationship, wishes only good and blessing for us, but he can also guarantee the accomplishment of that relationship 
and of that good. And the record of the Bible stands as proof of that accomplishment. And finally, uh, we'll take a look at the faith of Abraham. Faith is often one of those things we make much more mystical and difficult to understand than it really needs to be. In this uh, call of Abraham, I want to just make four very practical observations. One, faith comes by hearing. So now what do we see in verse 1? Now the Lord said to Abraham. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Abraham heard from God, most likely by some sort of appearance or audible voice. We are not specifically told how that occurred. Paul in Romans puts it this way. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who believe what has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why we as a church here at Berea Place such a great emphasis on the teaching and preaching of God's word. That's where the power is. Faith comes by hearing. Faith first has to be heard. It has to be put here and understood. Secondly, we look in verse 1. Faith transfers allegiance. So God says to Abram, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So go from your father's house. In a very real and very tangible way, God is physically moving Abraham away from everything he relies upon. God was trying to make Abraham totally dependent on himself. There's a shift of more of a spiritual nature of this truth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So that we read in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our life no longer is our own. It's in Christ, and we live our life according to Christ. Abram moved away. God called him away from all that he would depend upon so that he would depend upon God alone. Well, we can read I, uh, in, in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We are a sacrifice. We are a living sacrifice. We have given up ourselves. We, are, we have transferred uh, the desires of our own lives and given it to Christ. We have, we have moved, we have transferred our allegiance from ourselves to God. Thirdly, faith is obedience. So verse 4 says, So Abraham went as the Lord told him. Faith 
actually always results in some sort of action. That's basically what James, the, the author of James, is telling us in the New Testament, that faith without works is dead. True faith is believing in such a way that results in some sort of action in your life. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Hebrews 11.8, which we read again this morning. There is an obedience factor that comes in faith. There is, as we look at faith, not only is there a hearing and knowing, it moves into our heart and, it we, and we embrace it. But it even doesn't stop there. It moves out into action. It moves into obedience. It moves into doing things. It moves into conforming to God, to obedience to him. And fourthly, we read, faith leads to worship. So in 7 and 8, we read, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and upon the name of the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. True faith always results in worship. You cannot come to God in faith and never come to a point where you will not worship him. Abraham demonstrates that in his life, and that is the truth of, of, of Scripture. Worship is the natural outpouring of faith. There, if there is no desire to worship, there is no faith. There is no true faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Believers glorify God in their faith. They look to worship God because of what he has done in their lives. And it, it is this, this desire as, as God saves us and we, when, when, when we see and we see as Abraham comes to realize what has happened in his life through this call in his life that he just cannot keep himself from worshiping. He cannot hold himself back from worshiping. And Abraham is not, or Abram at this point, is not a perfect man. And I might take a little aside here. Uh, our faith is not always perfect, nor was he. So if we would look in Acts uh, and Stephen's account of, of Abraham's call, we read in Acts 7, 2 through 4, it says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham was, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which we are now living. So with the, with the, the contrast between these two, two accounts of Abraham's call is this, is that Stephen gives us the added detail that the call actually came to Abraham when he was an Ur of the Chaldees. When we come into Genesis, the call is actually shown as coming from Haran, where, where he moves out of Haran. Uh, and so what we see here is a partial obedience by Abraham that he moves 
out of Ur of the Chaldees to Haran, and he stops. Okay, uh, and the call was for Abraham to leave his country, to leave his kindred, to leave his father's house. He brings his father with him. And at Haran, his father dies. And then as the second call comes to Abraham, he moves out and moves down into Canaan. So our faith is not always perfect, but our faith is always moving forward to obedience. Our faith is looking to worship God. It's not perfect. There is not perfection in us, for us in this world. But there is always this movement positively towards God, towards obedience towards God, to the, the worship of God. It's an ongoing, an ongoing process in our lives, and it's a growing process in our lives, and it goes up and down in some sections of our lives. But we should always be moving towards God. And as we continue in this series, uh, as we continue preaching about Abraham and, and, and further, uh, a further series, we'll see that his faith does grow. It grows to the point where he is able to risk all for God, trusting that God will honor his promise despite all indication that it is impossible for God to do so. There comes a point in Abraham's life where God asks him to give up even the, 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 uh, his son, where, where the promise is, is, is to come through. And because of even this floundering early in Abraham's life, and we will see as we talk further about Abraham, that indeed he has places of up and down in his life of, of faith, but in the end, he ultimately says, even God, even if you take everything away, I know your promise, you can keep your promise to me. And that faith eventually grows to that extent in his life. This has been a good section of scripture. I hope this has helped you in, in some ways to understand it a little better. Uh, and I hope it has been a blessing to you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.